Beloved, if you would please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 through 17 as we continue in our series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and this evening, looking at uh, last week, of course, we did a, a kind of an overview. Uh, and this evening, we will look at, in particular, sola scriptura, uh, the scriptures alone. Uh, so please stand with me as we read uh, God's word, Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 to the end of the chapter. But as for you, uh, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as we hear your word preached this evening. Would you do your heart work in us? Would you transform our minds? Would you renew our minds? And would you lead us on uh, the paths of righteousness for your namesake, always resting in Christ alone for our salvation. Oh, Lord, show us him again tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of you will be familiar with Robert Louis Stevenson and his uh, famous book, Treasure Island. Some of you uh, perhaps have to read that for school. Some of you who are younger, uh, some of you who are older may remember reading that back in high school or college. Uh, perhaps you'll remember the scene that after a shootout took place between uh, the pirates and the English explorers, a man named Tom was killed. One of the explorers, trying to provide some consolation, said this, quote, All's well with him. No fear for a hand that's been shot down in his duty to captain and owner. It mayn't be good divinity, but it's a fact. Well, in other words, it may not be good theology to say that life in heaven comes to all of those who are killed in the line of duty, but it's the truth. Many think this way in our postmodern, post-Christian culture. Some years ago, I saw a news report on the web, and the title of the report, it was around election time, said, Moral Values Divide Voters. And the segment ended with the commentator saying this, The debate over morality has influenced the election and will continue to rage on. But the real debate of the moment is who owns morality? Who owns morality? It's a question that people continue uh, to ask in our own day. Who owns morality? What is the basis of morality? Even better, what is the basis for truth? What is the basis for Truth, who or what has final authority? It was a question that many were asking during the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Did the medieval Catholic Church have the ultimate authority or did Scripture? We learned last week that the Protestant Reformation was primarily a return to the authority and sufficiency 
of the Word of God, which, of course, led to the reform of all major doctrines in Scripture. But the nature and authority of Scripture was the first thing at hand. It was of first order. And interestingly, in our own confession of faith, rather than having chapter 1 be about God, chapter 1 is about Scripture. It's about the Word of God. Now, why wouldn't you put God first since God existed before Scripture? Well, because we wouldn't know anything about God except for the fact that He's revealed Himself in Scripture. And so in our own confession, we see the the priority of putting uh, what we believe about the Word of God first, and then chapter 2 is about the God who's been revealed in His Word, in the Scriptures. Uh, And so uh, you remember from last week uh, that the Reformation was the 16th century movement for the reform of the church and the reform of doctrine uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and the subsequent establishment of the Reformed and Protestant Church. And last week we briefly touched upon the five pillars or the five solas of the 16th, Protestant, uh, of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which are sola scriptura, sola scriptura, that God's Word is found in the Scriptures alone, that is, in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, um, and not the Apocrypha or other holy books. And the Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and life. That is the Christian position, that the Bible is the ultimate authority. Secondly, solus Christus, which we'll look at next time, is salvation through Christ alone. Salvation through Christ alone. He's the one mediator between God and man. There is no other Savior. There's no other way. There's no other path. Salvation is through Christ alone. Thirdly, Sola fide, salvation is through what? Faith alone. Faith alone. It's not by works. Salvation is not through anything done in us or by us. It's through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fourthly, sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone. It's not salvation by cooperation, which is really the essence of Roman Catholic uh, soteriology or, the, or, or their, their understanding of salvation. It's salvation by cooperation. God does his part, you do your, your part, and however well you do your part will determine how long you spend in purgatory. That's not in the Bible, and it's certainly not good news. Uh, Sola Gratia teaches that salvation is by grace alone. It's not salvation by cooperation. Fifthly, and finally, soli deo gloria. That all of this is for the glory of God alone, lest any man should boast. We learn that these five solas or these five tenets uh, are monumentally important and altogether necessary to uphold the basic structure of the Christian faith. Indeed, to deny or attack any one of these solas is to strike at the very uh, nucleus of Orthodox Christianity. These five solas are non-negotiables for everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian believer. So it's good for us to study them. It's good for us to be reminded uh, of them again and again. And so if you don't understand, uh, contemplate, and affirm these five key doctrines from Scripture, we are susceptible 
to the same superstitious, idolatrous, reason-based, and or emotionalistic errors that were so prevalent in the medieval church and that often find themselves emerging in the contemporary evangelical church as well. History is there for us to learn from. We would be foolish to ignore it. Listen to what Alistair McGrath, Alistair McGrath is a uh, sort of well-known uh, Anglican historian um, uh, in, at Oxford University at Wycliffe Hall. And listen to what he says about studying the, Reforma- the Reformation. To study the Reformation is not to luxuriate in Romanticism. It's not to look back in nostalgia like some old-timer hankering after the good old days when everything was better than it is now. It is not like the sentimental scrutiny of sepia-tinted photographs, nor the wistful recollection of days of lost innocence, a longing for a bygone period and its security. Rather, it is a hard-headed examination of past events, individuals, and ideas, with a view to exploiting their present potential. It is to reach into our Christian past and recover some of its riches. It is a critical awareness that not everything in the Christian present is quite what it could be. Linked with a willingness to consider alternative possibilities with a distinguished history of use within the Christian tradition. A helpful uh, and balanced view of history that teaches us uh, today. The five solas of the Reformation should cause us to do three things as we think about these solas uh, and what Alistair McGrath just said. Number one, to evaluate our present belief system and theological paradigms. These solas should challenge us on what it is we believe about these uh, foundational principles of the Reformation. Secondly, if need be, we should reprogram our thinking. We should bring it into conformity with God's Word. And thirdly, we should rejoice in our Reformed heritage because precisely of its rootedness in an emphasis upon Scripture, Christ, grace, faith, and God's glory. Uh, We, of course, um, uh, have differences with other denominations, with other uh, churches, and we, we, we want to approach those differences with charity. But one of the things that I think we can really rejoice in in our Reformed heritage and applying the Reformed, our Reformed confession and heritage um, is, is all of the emphasis upon the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God and all of His attributes and the, the monergistic approach to salvation that we all know is, is, is biblical. Well, let's turn our attention to the text of Scripture before us in 2 Timothy 3. 14 through 17, and begin by exploring verses 14 and 15, uh, verses that teach us some encouraging thing about, about Timothy's spiritual upbringing and things that we should consider. There are a lot of, a lot of parents here this evening, a lot of young parents, and, and uh, parents are always thinking about the best way to raise their children in the Lord, and, and here's some encouragement. And the first thing we see here is the powerful influence of a word-centered home the powerful influence of a word-centered home. We notice, first of all, in verse 15, that Timothy had known the sacred writings from childhood. Did you see that? Really, the word childhood in the original Greek could be translated infancy. 
So that the verse could be translated something like this. From infancy, you have known the sacred writings. Uh, I remember when we had our firstborn and um, I was holding her in Edinburgh and I was reading the Bible to her and reading the catechism to her and she was like weeks old, you know. Um, I was a little overzealous. Uh, but it's so longing to, 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 to get the word into the ears and heart of, of my children. But the word does have this powerful saving effect, doesn't it? From infancy, you have known the sacred writings. Many of you, boys and girls, who are being raised in Christian families, uh, you should uh, remember how blessed you are that from the time you were a little tiny baby, your parents were singing God's praise and bringing you to church and reading the Bible to you. And what a blessing. And uh, uh, this could be said to you from your earliest of days. You have, you have known the sacred writings. Now, we know from chapter 1 of this epistle that Timothy was brought up by his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5 says this, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. Although we don't know a whole lot about Timothy's upbringing, we learn three helpful, encouraging, uh, three helpful and encouraging facts here. First of all, that from his infancy he was taught the Scriptures. Whether Timothy's father was dead, we will never know. But what we do know is that from his childhood, from his infancy, Timothy's grandmother and mother taught him the Word of God. Of course, this wasn't unusual for those who held a high view of Scripture. For there are many commands in the Old Testament, and that's what he had, right? Timothy wasn't raised on the New Testament. He was raised on the Old Testament. Uh, and... Uh, and there, uh, there's so much teaching in the Old Testament about parents teaching their children the Word of God. Why? Because by teaching our children the Word of God, we are teaching them to know God, to love God, to put their faith in God, to trust God in a knowledgeable and devoted way. Here are a couple of passages that should encourage parents this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. Make the things of God known to your sons, to your daughters, to your grandsons, to your granddaughters. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's a home where God's word is, is being taught and, and discussed, where questions are being asked and answered. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is what we want to impart to our children. So Timothy, from his infancy, was taught the Scripture. Secondly, by grace through faith, Timothy became convinced that the Word of God was true. By God's grace, uh, Timothy owned his faith. He, he, he was owning that which was taught to him. 
there was the godly example of his mother and grandmother, yes. There was the majesty and profundity of the sacred writings that were taught to him, yes. But the foundational reason that Timothy was convinced of all that he learned was that he was, by God's sovereign grace, redeemed. He was illuminated by the Holy Spirit. He became alive. He was born again. And the means of this transformation was the Spirit's use of the word to create life and faith. 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding or enduring word of God. Romans 10.17, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Thirdly, we see here that the Old Testament scriptures pointed Timothy to Christ. Timothy trusted in the covenant promises of God for, uh, for the coming Messiah, and he was blessed to receive instruction about those promises being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. At this point, we need to stop and ask a question. What does Timothy's upbringing teach us? Well, there are many things we could focus on, but let me mention for time's sake, the main thing as a segue to our next section of text, and that is this. The Bible alone is the inspired Word of God. Therefore, it is authoritative, it is profitable, and sufficient for spiritual life and godliness. The Bible alone is the inspired Word of God. Therefore, it is authoritative, profitable and sufficient for spiritual life and godliness. What we must grasp here is that it was not only the great apostle Paul that believed us about God's word. No, it was also Eunice and Lois, two very ordinary people who took God's word seriously. And because they took God's word seriously, they diligently taught it to their children and grandchildren, both in their words and through their actions. And this is the essence of the Christian faith, isn't it? The transformation of God's people by the living and active Word of God, read, studied, and applied and practiced day after day, week after week, year after year, imperfectly and yet faithfully. This is the calling on God's people. And God's people take seriously the fact that God has spoken and is speaking in the pages of Scripture, things change, new priorities surface, new convictions emerge, and life becomes filled with intention and meaning and God-centered focus. But it all centers around taking God's Word seriously and actively submitting oneself to it. Again, let me say this. The Bible alone is the inspired Word of God. There are all kinds of holy books in the world, the Hindu Vedas, uh, the Muslim uh, Quran, um, uh, all of Buddha's writings. There are all these holy books, but it is only the Scripture that is the word of the living God. Therefore, it is authoritative, it is profitable, it is sufficient for spiritual life and godliness. And so there are a few characters, characteristics rather, of God's written word that I want to consider uh, this evening from our text. Look at verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The first thing we see here, the first attribute of Scripture we want to pay attention to is that God's Word is inspired. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. 
Uh, Theonoustos is the Greek uh, word. It is a, a breathing out of the word. Um, uh, what does this mean exactly? It means that the Bible has been spiritually exhaled by God through the apostles and the prophets. This doesn't mean that the biblical writers were robots uh, who were sort of possessed by the Spirit and just sort of wrote. Um, no, uh, they were not writing in a mechanistic fashion. On the contrary, God worked in and through their lives and personalities of these men to reveal his eternal word to the world, to his people first and then to the world. Um, yes, God did this. And you say, how can, through all these different authors throughout this, this 1,500 years and, and all of this, you're, you're saying that God, through all these lives and personalities, gave us exactly what we are needed to receive? And the answer is yes. God is that big. He is that wise. He's that powerful. And so we uh, trust him for that. The second thing I want us to see here tonight is that God's word is inerrant. That is, it is without error. Um, some w- would say that it must be corrupt. In fact, um, Muslim friends would say that the New Testament is most certainly corrupt because it has uh, come through uh, ordinary sinful men. And, and their Koran came down uh, from heaven. And so it's untainted. And they say yours is is ta- your, your, your scriptures are tainted and corrupted because they came through sinful man. Uh, and so, how is it, we must ask, that God can bring a perfect and infallible word through sinful and fallible men known as the apostles and the prophets? Well, I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again because it's so helpful. B.B. Warfield, that 19th century Princeton theologian, stated that Uh, Many folks would share with him that if light comes through a stained glass window, that light is stained by tints of glass through which it passes, just as the Word of God is tinted or marred by the men through which it came. Warfield responded by saying, What if God made the stained glass window and arranged every piece of that window so that the light would shine through the glass and do exactly what he wanted it to do at every single point. This is the view, dear ones, that we must have of Scripture and of our great God. Every detail of the Bible is according to his divine will and purpose. The Bible is without error. Thirdly, God's word is authoritative. It's, 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 it's deduction, right? It's a uh, Uh, If God's word is inspired and it comes from God, uh, then God's word, uh, of course, is authoritative and without error. If the Bible is the actual word of God and is without error, then it follows that it is authoritative. It's not one authority among others in the church. It is the authority. It is the highest authority. It is the word of God. Any authority that's in the church is derived from the authority of King Jesus and his word. And so we believe that this is the very word of God. This is how we should receive it. Look with me at at, at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. If you have your Bible, it's a very important verse there. Which we looked at this morning in adult Sunday school. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Uh, And so it's authoritative. And we receive it as such because it's the very word of the living God. Uh, Fourthly, God's word is profitable. It's profitable. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. How so? Well, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, That is, first of all, for, for teaching. It's profitable for teaching us God's will, his revealed will, his promises, his law, his, his, his commands. Uh, it's profitable for teaching doctrine. It's profitable for reproof in that it exposes our sin. It's like a mirror that shows us our sin. It's profitable for correction. It corrects our wrong lines of thinking and, and behavior. It corrects us and it trains us. It sets us on the right course. It strengthens our spiritual muscles. We are trained by the Word of God. And so we see the Word of God is profitable. It's the most profitable book in your library. It should be the the book that we are spending time with every day and more than any other book that we own. It's it's the Word of God, and it's profitable for all of these things. And finally, God's Word is sufficient It is precisely this characteristic or mark or attribute of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, which the church must once again reconsider and recover. For it's this one, I think, of all of them in modern-day evangelicalism that the church has lost. Let me explain. I want to give just a brief overview of church history from the Reformation as it concerns Scripture. In the Reformation, the authority of Scripture was challenged by the medieval Roman Catholic Church, saying that the tradition was equal to or above the Scripture. In the 19th and early 20th century, German higher criticism and American modernism, the inerrancy of Scripture was challenged. So the the late 19th century, early 20th century, there were all kinds of, of arguments being made in the academies about the inerrancy of Scripture, the big battles for inerrancy, which lasted really about 50 years. But now, from 1980 to the present, where we have the pragmatic church growth movement and modern-day evangelicalism, the sufficiency of Scripture is being challenged. So many will hold up their Bibles and say, this is the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's authoritative. But then they will put the Bible down and go on to all their other things and neglect it because they don't believe it's sufficient. We need to dress up the church and dress up things because the word is not enough. Again, individual churches may confess without hesitation the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and benefits of the scriptures, but it is the sufficiency of scripture that is called into question in practice more than in words And so it's not so much a disbelief in Scripture as the disbelief that the Scripture will accomplish what God says it will accomplish. James Boyce, the uh, uh, now in heaven, but the former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, put it this way, quote, 
Inerrancy is not the most critical issue facing the church today. The most serious issue, I believe, is the Bible's sufficiency. Do we believe that God has given us what we need in this book? Or do we suppose that we have to supplement the Bible with human things? Do we need sociological techniques to do evangelism? Pop psychology for Christian growth? Extra biblical signs or miracles for guidance? Or political tools for achieving social progress or reform? It is possible to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and yet to neglect it and effectually repudiate it just because we think that it is not sufficient for today's tasks and that other things need to be brought in to accomplish what is needed. This is exactly what many evangelicals and evangelical churches are are doing. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we really believe that the word of God is sufficient for the life and ministry of the church? Should we be quoting more sociologists and psychologists because we need to adorn the scripture with all these other voices from our culture? Or do we believe the scripture is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe that, that this is a living and active word that God is using by his spirit to save his elect from all over the world? Do we believe that? Well, that's the, that's the, 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 uh, um, the sola we're considering tonight, sola scripture. It's the scriptures alone that are the authoritative, life-transforming word of the living God and sufficient for life and ministry uh, in the church. It's the means whereby God brings life to the spiritual dead uh, and, uh, and, and, and strengthens our communion with Christ and teaches us of our union with Christ. Uh, and so the Bible says uh, in our passage this evening that the sacred writings are found, that in the sacred writings are found, notice in verse 15, the wisdom of God unto salvation in Christ. So we see the Bible really is sufficient to give us that which will lead us to Jesus Christ, the mediator, our Savior, uh, Christ who uh, lived a sinless life, Christ who died on the cross at Calvary and paid for the debt of our sin, Christ who rose from the dead on the third day and, and who ascended into heaven, that Christ who is coming again, that gospel is at the very center and heart of the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so all roads uh, in England lead to London, and all roads in the Bible lead to our Savior and to His gospel. We, we see this in Luke chapter 24, don't we, in the road to Emmaus, where uh, these dejected travelers are telling Jesus that they thought the Messiah had come, but He had died, and, and everybody's devastated. And, and Jesus said, you fools, have you not read the Scriptures? Did you not know that the, uh, the Messiah first had to suffer before entering into glory? And then it says, and then he exegeted himself or, or preached himself from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. He showed them himself in the old covenant. And that is precisely what we are called to do today is to see Christ in all of, of Scripture. And so that's that's um, Timothy there. He, as it says there, uh, he was acquainted with the sacred writings from his youth, from his infancy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith 
in Christ Jesus. This truly is um, that which is able to equip us for every, every good work, as we see in verse 17. Uh, there's a sense in which the primary application in verse 17 is that as uh, Paul uh, te- mentoring his disciple Timothy, who's a pastor, and he's encouraging him. This is called a pastoral epistle. But this also has a secondary application, doesn't it? Not just for ministers, that we would be complete, equipped for every good work, but all of God's people. This is how we get equipped unto every good work um, is, is through this word from God and Scripture. And so a couple of words of application. The first one is this, dear ones, establish and maintain a high view of Scripture. Um, There are some great little books out there on the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, Take time to read one. Um, I think Kevin DeYoung's recently new book, Taking God at His Word, is fantastic. Sinclair Ferguson has recently written a book on Scripture, which is very accessible for lay people. There are uh, heavier sort of volumes on these issues. Uh, uh, Michael Kruger has written books on the canon of Scripture and its origination and uh, very helpful stuff. And so become familiar with these things. Uh, We don't need to be afraid of the attacks on Holy Scripture, for it is truly the Word of God, and we can establish and maintain a high view of it. Secondly, trust in God's Word to do its work. As the rain comes from the heavens and waters the earth and brings forth fruit, brings forth fruit and vegetation, so when God's word comes out of his mouth, as Isaiah 55, he will accomplish his purposes. He will judge and he will save. He will kill and he will make alive through his word. And so we can trust him to work through it. Thirdly, let us all diligently attend to the, the reading and preaching of God's word in public worship and this for you and for your children and, and, and make the reading of the Word of God, that which you do personally and with your families, make this a non-negotiable priority uh, in our homes. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Not sola cultura. Not the culture alone is what we look to. Sola Scriptura is the authority for faith and for practice. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, sola of the Protestant Reformation, which teaches us so much uh, about where our ultimate allegiance lies and our, our uh, first attention uh, is given, namely to uh, your word, which is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient for life and ministry. Oh, Lord, we pray that in our church and in our homes, your word would be central. Sola Scriptura uh, to your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name.